Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I wanted to uh, start off the podcast today by talking about some of the economic data. We got a lot of data that came out today. Again, all the data that comes out is bad. uh, But again, there's a pass now on bad data. Nobody cares because they just blame it all on COVID-19 and just assume that as soon as we just flip the switch and turn the economy back on, that all the bad data is going to be good data. Uh, one of the data points that came out that was particularly weak was the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index. Uh, this is an April number, so uh, you know really impacted by the slowdown. The prior month was already pretty bad. The March number was two, but at least there was a, a plus sign in front of the two. The index was at positive two. They were looking for minus 38, and the projections went from a high of minus 15 to a low of minus 45. So the most bearish of forecasters thought that the Richmond Fed might fall all the way down to negative 45. The actual print was negative 53. So, you know, by the old price is rights rule, everybody lost because everybody went over uh, in overestimating uh, the number because the number was weaker than even the most pessimistic uh, number. You know, we also got another consumer confidence number Um, You know, ultimately, I don't think it's confidence that drives the economy, but it certainly reflects the bubble. And yes, if you have a bubble economy and people need to be confident enough or dumb enough to keep on borrowing and keep on spending, uh, then confidence is important. This is the April number. Now, the prior month was 120, which is still a pretty strong number uh, for March. That was revised down to 118.8. The consensus was for fall to 90, uh, and instead we dropped all the way down to 86.9, so below, although there were people that were more pessimistic. The range was anywhere from 65 to 100, so we kind of ended up in the middle of that range, but I have a feeling that people are still overly optimistic about the economy because, again, people still assume that everything is going to get better. They still don't understand how sick the economy was before the coronavirus. And so it's not going to have a rapid recovery. The best we're going to do is recover from depression to recession, which I don't know that that even qualifies as a recession. I think it's an ongoing uh, depression. But I think we still have a lot of overconfidence out there. But, you know, the number that was very, very weak, that gets no coverage at all in the media. In fact, I don't think I, I heard a single report about it, although maybe somebody mentioned it in passing somewhere. And that is the goods trade deficit, what used to be known as the merchandise trade deficit. We now look at, you know, uh, the the deficit that includes services, where the United States has a surplus in uh, in services. Uh, But we have a huge deficit in goods. And even when you combine 
the the surplus with services with the deficit in goods, you know, it's still a big a big negative number. Uh, but we got the number for March. So this isn't even April yet. This is March. So this is just the beginning of uh, COVID-19, right? And, and so the trade deficit for February was $59.9 billion, right? That's one month, right? That's how much the debt is. And the consensus was that we were going to see a contraction in the trade deficit, meaning that it wouldn't be as large as it was. It would narrow uh, to $55 billion, right? And that would be a positive because the smaller the trade deficit, the better, right? The less the deficit, the bigger. And remember that when you have GDP, you always subtract the trade deficit from GDP. So the bigger your trade deficit is, the larger the number that you have to subtract from your GDP. And we all know that GDP is about to implode anyway. And so maybe we would have gotten a little bit of a buffer because if we had a smaller subtraction from a narrowing trade deficit, then it wouldn't be quite as bad. Well, instead of the trade deficit narrowing, it actually ballooned, it expanded. The deficit for March came in at $64.2 billion, uh, which is higher or worse than anybody had expected. Again, we exceeded uh, the worst expectation that anybody had for the trade deficit. And the way we got the trade deficit is that we saw a decline in both imports and exports, right? So everything contracted. We exported less and we imported less, right? Which is a sign of a big drop in the economy. And this is March. I mean, wait till we see the April numbers. I mean, they're going to blow these out as far as how bad they're going to be. But our imports declined by 2.4%. But our exports plunged by 6.7%, which really shows some weakness. I know other people will say, oh, that shows weakness in the foreign markets because they couldn't buy as much American products. No, no, no. The reality is our production dropped. This uh, reflects weakness in the U.S. economy because we were not able to produce products to export or because we were producing less ourselves we had to import more of what we consumed, even though we, we imported less uh, because we produced a lot less. We had to rely more heavily on imports than on exports. And I think this is a, another sign. This portends uh, quite uh, ill uh, for U.S. economy and for the future value of the dollar. You know, if you remember, or you probably don't remember, so I'm going to point this out, but in the early stages of the 08 financial crisis, when that recession really got going, the trade deficit came down. I mean, we, we were at a record high, but it really came down as that recession started. The opposite of what's happening now. Instead of coming down, the trade deficit is actually getting worse. And the trade deficit is a major economic imbalance that needs to come down. In fact, when the trade deficit initially started to come down as part of the Great Recession, that was a positive development. I mean, the deficit needed to come down. That was part of the cure. But when the government came in with stimulus, which inhibited the cure, the trade deficit started to go back up again because they were encouraging more debt and more consumption. But now the fact that the recession is starting, but we're not even seeing any relief on the trade front, the fact that the trade deficit is getting worse as the recession is starting, to me, that's a very, very bad sign of how much weaker the U.S. economy is today than it was in 2008 and how much more overvalued the U.S. dollar is now than it was back then and how it has a much longer way to fall than, than it did back then. And, you know, I watched this uh, YouTube video this morning and it was a pretty good uh, video, and I would uh, encourage people to watch it. George Gammon uh, came up with it. It's on his channel. In fact, I did an interview with him about a month ago, and it's a well-done video, and it's actually about me, right? I mean, that's how I noticed it. It was a video about Peter Schiff. Somebody said I should watch it. You know, I read a lot of my comments, right? I mean, so if you don't think I'm engaged, and I don't respond to everybody, but I look on YouTube, I look on Twitter, and I reply, 
you know, not to all the comments, but I, you know, because I don't, I mean, I don't have enough time to do it, but I do like to engage um, with my followers, uh, my viewers, uh, and, and, and so, and if you put stuff up there, a lot of times I see it, right? Even if I don't respond to it, uh, I see some of the comments and some of the replies. So definitely encourage people to make them. And again, even if I don't have a chance to read your comment, somebody else does. And so, and the more discussion that we get uh, on my YouTube channel, on my uh, Twitter account, on my face, it's good. It's good to have my followers engaging with one another and debating one another. Yeah, I know I got a lot of these Bitcoin trolls now that come on. And, you know, some people say, hey, Peter, why don't you like, you know, I could ban these people, right? I could, I could make it so they can't get on my, my, uh, my channel. But, you know, the only time I've ever really done that really is when people really start saying racist things or starting, you know, cursing. I mean, I don't like that on my channel. So if you're, if you're going to have a habit of, uh, you know, using bad language or being, having racist comments, uh, then I, I might block you if you do that. But I don't block people just because they disagree with me. I like people coming on and disagreeing with me, but I like to see other people, uh, you know, challenge them or combat those those points. But I know there are some people or a few of you, like every time I tweet something out, there's a Bitcoin tweet that comes right after that. I mean, so I think it's a little much. I mean, I'm not banning people, but hey, I would say, you know, exercise a little restraint there. You don't have to do it every time, you know, with the same tweet about Bitcoin or something like that. Um, uh, but, you know, th th I do like to have activity going on uh, on my sites and people engaging with one another and, 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 and going back and forth. So in reading the comments, somebody said, hey, Peter, check out this video. And so I checked it out. That's how I knew about this George Gammon video. And so the title of the video is, is Peter Schiff uh, right on inflation? And so it's a good video. I won't ruin the ending by telling you whether or not he agrees with me. I mean, maybe you could guess. Uh, but you can go watch it. But I wanted to bring it up because there was one point that he made. That was a very good point. But he left out uh, some very important material. Now, I'm sure he probably he he probably knows this, but just, you know, there's only so much that you can put in uh, to your video. But this is an important point. So he didn't put it in. So I'm going to put it in for him here. But it really goes well with what I'm talking about, the trade deficit. So he drew the contrast between a traditional uh, economy where production determines consumption, right? Where the more you produce, the more you consume and where savings drives consumption because savings drives investment, which drives production. And in that world, uh, production lowers prices, right? The more productive you are, the lower the prices become. And the lower the prices are, the more people can consume. And the more they can consume, uh, the higher the living standards and the more businesses can sell because they're able to succeed in producing more and lowering prices, they end up making more money. And so everybody is a winner in a free market society driven by savings, underconsumption, production, right? And, and, and that was like a normal economy, free market economy. Then he, he created an economy or, you know, that was like ours. That was all based on leverage, where you didn't spend based on production. It was based on debt. The more you could borrow, the more you could spend. And so the borrowing was a function of artificially low interest rates and of high asset prices. Because the higher the asset prices, the more collateral that you had to take on debt. And then the lower the interest rates were, the more money that you could afford to borrow. And so therefore, instead of... Uh, consumption being driven by savings and production, it was driven by debt and asset prices. And this is where uh, George made one mistake because even that economy, that bubble economy, that debt-driven consumer model, which basically was describing the United States, even that economy is driven by production because production is always the restraining factor when it comes to consumption, because you cannot consume what has not been produced. So in society, your ability to consume is always restrained by your ability to produce. So it's supply that is the limiting factor, not demand. That's what the Keynesians don't understand. See, what George left out of his example 
is the reason this bubble economy, in his example, could keep consuming based on debt was because they were importing those products, right, that somebody else was consuming. They were going into debt with another economy. That other economy was doing all the production. That's where all the goods were being made and they were being shipped into this bubble economy that was acquiring those goods based on credit and their ability to continue to acquire those goods that they did not produce was a function of asset prices and cheap money because they had to keep borrowing to import the goods that they were not producing. So ultimately what what George missed out on is what happens to that society when it can no longer import those goods, right? That's when consumer prices really skyrocket because consumer prices were being limited by all the goods that were being shipped into the economy that were not being produced. But because those goods were there, that was increasing the supply of goods. So uh, that was keeping some type of lid on the price of those goods. But once those goods are no longer available because they can no longer be imported because the currency has imploded of that economy, that's what's going to happen. And that's why our trade deficit is so important, right? That trade deficit is what is keeping us afloat. But you have to look at the other side of the deficit, and that is the countries that are financing it, the countries that are exporting the stuff and taking our IOUs. How much longer are they going to do that? You know, I would say that the, the days are numbered, uh, that the dollar's days as the reserve currency are going to come to an end. You see, because all of our trading partners who are sending us this stuff, right? All this, the merchandise, I, what did I say that the deficit was for uh, March? It was $64.2 billion of stuff, right? Real stuff that we consume that make our lives better. And while we paid for some of this stuff by exporting services, most of this stuff we just put on a national credit card. We exported IOUs, paper dollars, right? And so why is the world giving us all this stuff that they have to produce and they have to divert resources to produce it, land, labor, capital. I mean, they could have used those resources to produce stuff for themselves or they could have just had more leisure. They could have just worked less, right, and not made stuff for us and just enjoyed themselves. But no, they, 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 they devoted all this capital and labor. They produced all this stuff and they sent it to America. What are they getting in exchange? They're getting dollars, well, I mean, do they actually want the dollars? I mean, what do they do? Are they going to take the dollars and hang them up on a wall like and admire it like it's a work of art? No. What they're doing with these dollars is they're saving them to spend them later, right? So what they're doing is they're working now to earn dollars that they can spend later and buy stuff, buy these goods. So what they're trying to do is defer their consumption. So Americans are accelerating consumption. We're consuming now and we're promising to pay later. What the rest of the world is doing is they're producing now and they want to consume later when they cash in their IOUs. Well, you know, the joke's on them because there's nothing to cash in. We can't make good these IOUs. See, the factories don't exist anymore. We can't produce what the world would need because the dollars are spendable here. Like here's a, you know, an example would be, let's say, I, I owned a golf course, right? The Peter Schiff golf course. And um, I decide that, you know, I'm going to go into a community and I'm going to acquire goods and services and I'm going to pay for it by giving out IOUs for a round of golf, right? So, you know, hey, if you give me, uh, you know, uh, this in exchange, I'm going to write this one IOU good for one round of golf at the Peter Schiff golf course. And I'm just going to make that IOU up and I'm going to, I'm going to exchange it for some goods and services, right? And people might be willing, yeah, Peter's got a great course. And so I really like to play on that course. And so, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, i be willing to do some work or exchange some uh, products to get uh, that IOU, right? And now people, you know, they're working, right? I, I don't have time to play golf now. I'm really busy. But, you know, one of these days I'm going to retire. I'm not going to be working. I'm going to have a lot of time to play golf. And that's when I'm going to use this thing, right? When I retire, I'm going to retire. I'm going to play golf. And I'm gonna, it's not going to cost me anything because I have all these IOUs from Peter Schiff, right? I'm going to go play on his golf course. 
in retirement, right? So people are accumulating uh, these IOUs, knowing that when they retire, they're going to be able to retire and ha- play a lot of golf, right? Because they, they, they've already earned the right to do that. But meanwhile, if I see people are just accepting my my IOUs to play on my course, but everybody's just setting them aside. Nobody's actually playing golf now. Everybody is waiting to play golf later in the future. I can really start flooding the world with these things. Like no one's even playing. In fact, I don't even need to maintain the course because no one's actually playing any golf. Everybody is holding on to these IOUs because they all want to play golf when they're retired. They don't want to play now. They're too busy working now to enjoy golf, right? In fact, they're doing a lot of work for me to get my IOUs to play on my course. So everybody's collecting these golf course IOUs and I'm there, you know, living high on the hog. I'm getting all kinds of goods and services. And all I do is write out an IOU to play on my course, right? Well, you know, meanwhile, I'm not maintaining the course. So let's say years and years go by and all of a sudden the golf course has been replaced with like a forest that is all overgrown. There's trees everywhere. There's just no golf course left, right? Well, what are my IOUs worth? to play on a golf course that doesn't exist anymore. They're not worth anything. I mean, at some point, the people who have been collecting these IOUs are going to have to notice I don't have a golf course anymore, that the the IOUs are worthless. And and they weren't accumulating the IOUs because they wanted the IOUs. They wanted to play golf, and they thought I had a course. And at one point, maybe I did, but if I don't have one when they want to use it, then they've wasted their time. See, at one point, America had all kinds of factories. We produced all kinds of goods. Having our IOUs meant something. Now, of course, at one point, our IOUs were redeemable in gold, right? You actually got gold. So it didn't even matter about whether or not we had the factories. We had the gold and we had an obligation uh, to, uh, to pay gold. Uh, but now we have nothing. It's just paper. So if we don't have the productive capacity to make good these IOUs, then they're worthless. And once all of our creditors realize that, then the party's over, right? If I was living on my golf course IOUs and I was counting on the fact that I could pay for whatever I wanted with an IOU to play on a golf course, well, when people realize that my course is gone and nobody will accept my IOUs anymore, well, then I'm over, right? My, the party's over for me. I can't buy anything now because, you know, pe- people realize the cat's out of the bag. I don't have a golf course. Well, that's the United States. And we're going to see this big collapse uh, as the dollar implodes. And that's why we're going to have even more inflation because it's not just about demand. It's about supply. And George did a good point, uh, made a good point of, or illustrated that point that everybody wants to look at demand and think, oh, well, there's not going to be inflation because demand's going to go down. What about the other side of that equation? What about supply? What if supply falls even faster than demand? Then prices go up which is what's going to happen. And that's what will happen in a recession. People will be spending a lot less, but what they are buying is going to end up costing a lot more. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, while I'm thinking about it too, you know, I did a um, an interview over the weekend with with Chris Irons, uh, uh, quote the Raven, and I actually thought of something while I was doing that that interview uh, that I hadn't thought of before. You know, I thought of it as I was saying it, and I said, oh, you know, I, I got to mention this on my own podcast because it really dovetailed well into a point that I had made on my last podcast, and it actually works well with what I just discussed about the dollar having been backed by gold. So I talked on my last couple of podcasts about the, the paper market for gold and ETFs and, hey, what if the gold isn't really there, right? What, 
what if there's a run on these ETFs because people don't actually trust that the gold is there? And then, of course, if the gold isn't there and, and people find out that there wasn't gold, there was a big problem because now people thought they owned gold and they find out that they don't. And now they have to scramble to buy what they thought they already owned. But the original run, right, on the equivalent of an ETF is what happened prior to the U.S. leaving the gold standard in 1971. That's really what happened because the U.S. really ran the equivalent of a gold ETF before we ever had a gold ETF. And the way the ETF worked is that the world held dollars, which were redeemable, $35 got you an ounce of gold. And so America told the world, hey, you don't have to back your currency with gold, back it with dollars because we got your gold right here. Dollars as good as gold. We'll give you an ounce of gold whenever you give us $35. In the meantime, you can lend us those $35. You can buy a U.S. Treasury and we'll pay you interest, which is a win-win. You own gold and you earn interest. I mean, why just own gold that pays no interest when you can buy U.S. Treasuries that pay interest and you can have your gold whenever you want, right? This was the deal that we made with the rest of the world. The world was dumb enough to believe us. And initially, you know, we, you know, we were honest about the deal. But then, you know, once we realized that we could just print money and we didn't have to actually have to have any gold, that's when we started running these big deficits. Um, you know, we did uh, the war on poverty or the great society programs, uh, uh, Kennedy, then Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. We, we had the Vietnam War. We went, to, we went to the moon. We funded all this government. And at the time, they called it guns and butter. How, how do you have guns and butter? Well, easy, run deficits. That's how we did it. And so what happened was de Gaulle in, in France he basically was like, wait a minute, there's no way the United States has all this gold. They've been printing all this money, running all these deficits. There's no way there's enough gold uh, at Fort Knox where, for the U.S. government to pay everybody an ounce of gold for every $35. So that's when de Gaulle was like, give me my gold. I don't want your IRU. So that's kind of like somebody saying to a gold ETF or even maybe a futures contract where you're long, I don't think you can deliver. I don't think you actually have the gold. So now I want it. Here's my shares. Give me my gold. That is, in effect, what the world did. There was a run on the U.S. giant gold ETF where uh, owners said, BS, you don't have the gold. And that was really what created the problem. You had this big gold drain. But the problem was because we were conning the world, we were counterfeiting money, we didn't have enough gold to make good our IOUs. And in fact, anybody, if you just looked at prices in the 1960s, right, because prices really started to go up for everything, right? Look at the CPI in the, 19, in the 1960s. The price of everything went up except the price of gold. The price of gold was stuck at $35 an ounce. So how can the price of everything go up Right, yet you can still buy gold in 1970 at the same price it was at in 1960 or 1950 for that matter or 1940. The gold price hadn't gone up at all, but the price of everything else had gone up. And so, really, what that meant was gold was cheap because the price of gold was being held artificially low. Right. And so gold was actually being utilized for all sorts of things. People were plating their silverware with gold. I mean, people were using gold for a lot of things because gold was actually cheaper. And, and so what happened, though, was in 1970, when Nixon is now confronted with the possibility of losing all of the United States gold, which couldn't have happened. It would have been a disaster. Nixon really had two uh, choices, two good economic choices, both politically bad, but economically good. See, one thing was deflation, right? To deflate the general price level, to bring it back in line with $35 gold, right? Because we had had all this inflation, we would need to have a lot of deflation, right? So other prices would have to come down to meet $35 gold. And that would include stock prices, real estate prices. We would have to deflate, cut, shrink the money supply, right? And that would have a lot of problems politically to deflate the price level back down to where it was when gold was $35 now. So the first thing is deflation, right? 
No politician wants deflation. What was the second way out of this? Devalue the dollar, right? Just officially raise the price of gold to where it would have to be given the level of all the other prices. Now, I don't know where that would have been. Maybe gold would have to go to $100, $150, but that would be an official massive devaluation of the dollar and an admission by the government at how much value the U.S. dollar had lost due to the profligacy of the U.S. government. Now, of course, even if they took either of those uh, options and probably devaluation would have been less politically uh, you know, dangerous than deflation, but even if they officially devalued, they would have to reform their monetary policy. They would have to, going forward, balance the budget. Otherwise, they would have to continuously devalue the dollar, which would be a problem. Just the threat of it. Once people see that you devalue once, they know you're going to do it again. So if we would have done, taken that route of an official devaluation, which is an admission, hey, we screwed up, we did something really, really bad, and now we've got to devalue, you have to accompany that by a major reform. Okay, we've learned our lesson. We're doing this devaluation, but you know what? We're balancing the budget now. We're massively cutting government spending. Uh, the dollar is going to be sound going forward. I know we screwed up in the past, uh, and yeah, we did that, but we learned from our mistakes. We're going to live within our means. No more deficit spending. Uh, the buck stops here. It's going to stop falling here. So we could have done that, right? And But Nixon didn't choose either of those two options. And, you know, my father, and I pointed this out Uh, on the the podcast, but my father gave the U.S. government those two options exactly in 1968 when he testified in front of the U.S. Senate on the Committee on Money and Banking. My father said, those are your two choices. That's what you could do, right? And, you know, they didn't follow my father's advice. And in fact, the Secretary of the Treasury and the uh, Chairman of the Federal Reserve also testified at the same hearing and they're, they're, they had the opposite advice. They, their advice was just go off the gold standard, <laughs> which is what we ended up doing because those choices were both so bad politically, they took the third choice, which is just go off the gold standard completely. And if you believe this, the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chairman of the Fed said that if you go off the gold standard, the price of gold is going to go down, not up. And that inflation will go down. My dad was like the only guy that testified that if we went off the gold standard, the price of gold would go up and inflation would go up too. And of course, that's exactly what happened because, you know, Nixon did try devaluation twice. They devalued the dollar twice. They ended up around $42 an ounce. But that wasn't enough of a devaluation because the gold kept leaving because that was peanuts compared to, you know, how much the dollar had actually uh, been depreciated by all the money printing and all the deficits. Uh, So they didn't have the stomach to do the right thing. So they ended up going off the gold standard completely, and then gold went up to 850, and we had the 1970s. We had all that inflation of the 1970s as the dollar lost value, and even though we had a a terrible recession, uh, we had a bad economy during the 1970s, we still had a lot of inflation because of the, the fall in the value of the dollar, which is going to get worse this time. Because this time, it's not just going to be the dollar getting marked down. It's going to be the dollar getting knocked out because the dollar is going to lose uh, its role as the reserve currency when people realize uh, that we don't have a golf course left. And so these IOUs are worthless and there's no future consumption. And then the dollar is going to plunge and all those goods uh, that were coming into the United States are not going to be coming in anymore. I read this article too, um, a Wall Street Journal article, which you could see on uh, on the internet. And the title of the article is, you know, basically the error of big government is back, right? And he was, the article was uh, referencing uh, Ronald Reagan, right? When he famously said, the error of big government is over. And that would have been great. I wish the era of big government ended with Ronald Reagan. It didn't. Uh, government uh, continued to get bigger. In fact, It's never ended. So it's not like big government is back. We've always had big government. But one of the things that has changed is that how we paid for big government. We paid for big government with deficits as opposed to taxation. And that kind of made big government not as bad, right? Because it wasn't as expensive, right? People didn't 
know the cost because we deferred the cost uh, with debt or we passed the cost on to our trading partners by running deficits or exporting our inflation. So uh, people were no longer as uh, uh, against big government if they thought they were getting it for free, right? I mean, if something is free, right? Well, you're fine. I'm, I'm all for it if I can get it for free. But remember, there's nothing that's free, especially when it comes from the government, right? Whatever you get for free is more expensive uh, when the government provides it than if you would have bought it. Uh, but in addition to all this so-called free stuff, the big government uh, undermines the economy. I mean, the economy is far less efficient, far less productive the bigger the government gets. So not only does big government exact the cost in that you have to pay for the government, you have to physically pay the salaries of all the government bureaucrats, but the existence of that big government makes the economy less efficient. It makes the economy less productive. Businesses are spending resources complying with regulations that aren't making the products better or making the products safer or whatever. Uh, they're, they're using money that could have been invested to producing more stuff or improving the quality or you know, a higher quantity. So everybody loses when you have this big government. But the idea that, you know what, now big government is back. I mean, if it never left, what are we about to get? It's not that you know the era of of small government is over. No, no, no. It's just that the era of big government that never ended is about to get worse because we're about to get even more government now than we had before. So it's going to be even bigger government, except how are we going to pay for that bigger government? Inflation. It's all going to be paid for with a printing press, which is the worst way to pay for government and the most expensive way to pay for government. And that's what everybody's going to find out. You know, I'm, I'm watching these discussions on, on CNBC and they're talking about the debt, right? And by the way, you know, the debt is up another $100 billion since my podcast on Friday, right? When I done my podcast on Friday, the debt was uh, $24.6 trillion. Now it's $20.473 trillion. But we had just hit 26 and no sooner we did, now we're over 27. Right. So, I mean, we're going to be at 25 trillion. I don't know if it'll be by my next podcast, maybe my 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 podcast after that, but we'll, we'll definitely be at, at at 25 trillion. So they're talking about the run up in debt and the fact that even the government, the CBOE uh, is saying three point seven trillion dollar debt this year, which means it's probably four and a half to five trillion. I mean, imagine that in one year, in one year, we can run as big a deficit as all all four years of Bush. And it's not like Bush's deficits. I mean, his, his second term, you know, uh, uh, when we had the financial crisis or, I mean, it's crazy that, that it would be that much debt. Actually, it's his whole eight years, rather. I think, I think we did about $5 billion in eight years of Bush. If we could do that in one year of Trump, let alone four years of Trump, uh, this is a, a, a massive amount of, of deficit spending. But they're talking about it on, on CNBC. And they, they're comparing it, of course, to World War II. And they're saying, you know, this is now the highest debt to GDP. And I think they're not even looking at the debt to GDP that the, 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 the uh, Social Security owns or the trust funds. I think they're looking at debt held by the public or whatever, but it, which, may, which means it's really even worse. But they're saying that you have to go back to World War II. We're now at the World War II level, maybe even slightly higher, of how big the debt is relative to GDP because we took on a lot of debt during World War II to pay for that war, right? And most of that debt, the vast majority of it, was money borrowed uh, from the American public. The Treasury sold war bonds, right? And yes, they taxed, they increased taxes dramatically during World War II, but that wasn't enough to pay for World War II. So in addition to taxing the public more, the government borrowed more heavily from the public. So the public really uh, bailed out the government and paid for World War II. That's how it happened. Right. So but the debt really was run up. And so these guys are talking on CNBC and they said, well, you know, we're just going to have to pay down the debt like we paid it down after World War Two, which we did. The national debt went way down as a percentage of GDP in the decades that followed World War Two. Right. So it got really, really high. And then we paid it down over time as a percentage of GDP. It, it, it shrank from, you know, where it was over 100% down to like 35% or something like that over, over a few decades. 
Uh, and, and so these commentators are saying, we're going to have to do the same thing again. Okay, yeah, we did it once. We'll do it again. Like, it's no big deal, right? We did it before, and so we'll just do it again. But these guys are so clueless about the differences between America in 1945 and America in, in 2020. I mean, they don't realize that taxes as a percent of GDP, federal taxes, doubled during the war. Right? So the U.S. government was collecting twice as much taxes when the war ended as it was before the war began. So Americans paid double right, taxes. And this is not just the rich. This is middle class people had a significant tax increase. And that's really because federal taxes were very small. Even though Roosevelt had jacked them up uh, during the Depression, uh, I mean, I think it was still maybe like 8% of GDP or something like that was taxes. And I think it doubled to like 16%, which is still lower than it is today. But taxes doubled to fight the war. And then when the war ended and we you know, demobilized and we took all the troops, right? Whatever it was, uh, 16 million uh, men uh, came back from Japan, came back from Europe, right? We, we you know, demobilized everybody, uh, you know, all the wartime production stopped right? We did all that. The taxes did not stop. The government continued to collect all the wartime taxes, even though the war was over. So the government had all this extra money after the war that it didn't have before the war. Now, one of the problems was once all this money was coming into Washington, right? The bureaucrats couldn't resist coming up with new ways to spend it, right? Raise that didn't exist before the war, right? They found all these new programs, they started paying. But they had all this revenue, right, that was able to reduce the debt because the wartime taxes never went away. In fact, they're still here. The, 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 the victory tax was the withholding tax. That's when middle-class people started paying the income tax for the first time ever. People that didn't pay any income taxes at all before the war started paying income taxes during the war because of the victory tax. Well, we won that war in 1945. Why are we still paying that victory tax? The telephone excise tax was part of the 1942 victory tax. That tax is still on. In 2020, you're paying a tax that was imposed to win the Second World War. We won the war, but we're still paying the tax. Again, that's why I've said on this podcast, my father used to tell me we lost every war. Even though we won every war, we lost every war because every war gave us higher taxes and more government and the government never surrenders those powers when the war is over. That's what's going to happen right now with this war on COVID, right? Look at all the powers that are being usurped to fight COVID. Do you think any of these powers are going to be surrendered when this war is over? In fact, they're going to drag this war on as long as they can so they can keep on you know, usurping power and, and denying us rights. But you know, getting back to the point I was making, I don't want to be too, off, too much on a tangent here. But um, so... The way we were able to pay down all that debt was because we increased taxes dramatically. Can we do that now? Can we double taxes today? You know, I know people think, oh, we can just double them on the rich. That's impossible. We can't double taxes on the rich. I mean, the rich are already paying. If you look at the rates, right, they're already paying the majority of the taxes. But the top federal tax rate is 39% now. 35% plus the Obamacare, it's 39. You add state income taxes that are no longer deductible. You have people in the marginal tax rates right now of 45% or more. You can't double that tax. You can't tax 90% and expect to collect anything. Nobody is going to work for 10 cents on the dollar. So you end up losing money. You, you, not only won't you get the 90%, you won't even get the 45% you were getting before because the income that you wanted to tax will disappear before you have a chance to tax it. We would have to double taxes on the middle class. But, you know, if the middle class are barely making it, right, look at how many people are living paycheck to paycheck now. Can you imagine if you doubled their Social Security taxes? If Social Security taxes went from 15%, which is about where they are now. I mean, yes, you pay half, but your employer pays the other half. If we double the payroll tax to 30%, how many people could still survive if the payroll tax was doubled? Remember, if the payroll tax is doubled, your employer has to get 
your half out of your wages. There's no free free lunch. It does the money just doesn't come from heaven. It has to come from your productivity. So imagine if the payroll tax went to 30%. That's what we'd have to do to double taxes. And what about income tax? What if you're in the 20% bracket right now in the middle class and you go to the 40% bracket? You think the average guy has all this extra money? No, he doesn't have any extra money. He couldn't even pay his rent the minute he missed one paycheck. The whole country imploded once one paycheck went away. Can you imagine what would happen if we tried to double everybody's taxes when people could barely pay the tax they have now? And also, you know, if you look at the economy, right, we always want to compare debt to GDP, but GDP is not the same. You've got to look at the quality of that GDP. Where is it coming from? Back in 1945, it was industrial. It was manufacturing. It was production. That was that GDP. It was a real economy. Now it's consumption. You know, it's been 70% consumption. In fact, one of the points that people want to overlook, and I've heard some people make this point, um, but in 2019, 2019, um, debt to GDP was um, 90%. In fact, I think the last person that, that I heard made it uh, uh, was Gunlock. Yeah, he was. I, I watched his, uh, his 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 interview. Oh, and I know. Uh, by the way, you know, so he you know he he was watching the last couple of my podcasts, and he he was quoting from me. Of course, he never wants to give me credit, so I called him out from that, and he ended up blocking me on on Twitter. So uh, not only did he block me, he blocked my 17 year old son. I guess he wanted to make sure that I didn't know what he was tweeting uh, by way of my uh, my 17 year old son. Uh, so next time, if he wants to tweet something he heard on my podcast, I won't know about it. Although I'm sure, I'm sure people will tell me about it. But I think, but this is that's the last person he made this point on CNBC. I think it was yesterday, and, and so I wanted to credit him for making the point. Uh, but um, that he pointed out that 90 percent of uh, the GDP in 2019 was from consumption. 90%, not the 70% that it normally is. 90%. That's how heavily our GDP was comprised of consumption. And where did consumers get this money? They borrowed it. They levered it up, right? That's where it came from. And we're running these huge deficits. So our current GDP is not nearly as real or sustainable as it was in 1945. So the GDP is about to implode because as consumer prices rise, as consumer credit disappears, right, as the dollar tanks, our GDP is going to implode exactly at the same time that our debt is exploding. So we're going to be far higher than anything we had after GDP because the numerator is going to go like this while the denominator is going like that. And so we're going to be at 150, 200%. We're going to be at numbers that are going to be so far above anything we were at back then when we actually had the capacity to repay that debt. What capacity do we have now to repay the debt? None. We don't even have the capacity to repay the debt that we had before COVID-19, let alone all the extra debt posts. So all these guys that are talking about we're just going to pay it down, they have no conception of what they're talking about. It is impossible to pay this debt down. So the only thing we can do is inflate it away because we don't have the guts to default on the debt. I mean, that would be the lesser of the evils, but they're not going to do that. Just like Nixon in 1971 didn't want to go off the gold standard, didn't want deflation. So they, I mean, uh, I mean, didn't want to devalue the dollar, didn't want deflation. So he just left the gold standard, took the coward's way out, the easy way out. It was worse for the economy, but it was politically easier to do. That's what's going to happen. Inflating the debt away is worse for the economy. It's worse for the standard of living of Americans, but it's more politically palatable than the opposite, which is an honest default and telling people that you're not going to pay. Instead, just paying with money that doesn't have any value and then blame the inflation on somebody else. Blame it on a speculator. Uh, blame it on greedy capitalists, whatever you want to do. You know, meanwhile, looking at the price of gold, which should be just going through the roof, right? I mean, the price of gold was down a little bit today. Uh, but it's still uh, it's still trading up near the highs, you know, getting ready for an explosive rally. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that the price of gold didn't really move up today was because the stock market was stronger today. Right. You had a stronger stock market. Uh, and so whenever the stock market is going up, you know, there is a tendency to sell gold. Right. Because, you know, the it's either risk on or risk off. Right. When when people 
are worried and they want to take risk off, right? They're selling stocks. That's when they're buying safe haven. So people generally think, okay, when people are, are risk off and they want to sell their risky assets, that's when they want to buy safe haven assets like gold. Well, today, oh, it's a risk on day, right? People are putting on risk. They want to buy the risky assets. So they're going to sell gold, right? They're not as concerned. They're not as worried. They don't need a safe haven. They want risk they, because they're optimistic and they want to buy stocks. Well, you know, what the investors still haven't figured out is that the only reason that the risk of equities is, is off is because the risk of inflation is on. What is driving the stock market higher is the Fed. It is inflation. It's money printing. It's printing up money and buying financial assets. And right now they're buying bonds. They're buying corporate bonds. Uh, junk bonds, not even, you know, investment quality. They're buying municipal bonds. So you, 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 that it's the inflation that is driving the market. It's not earnings. Earnings are collapsing. It's not the economy. So it's not the fundamentals. It's inflation. It's the Fed creating inflation. That's what's bullish for stocks. Well, if the only reason that equity risk is off is because inflation risk is on, what is the best asset to own when there's rising inflation, it's gold. So when traders figure this out, they're going to buy gold, whether it's risk on or whether it's risk off. Because if the economy is tanking, if the market is tanking, that's good for gold because it means the Fed's going to print more money. And if the market is going up because the Fed is printing more money, well, then you should buy gold even more. So in an inflationary environment, gold is better than stocks unless you're talking about gold stocks which are even going to be better than gold, which is what, again, people should be buying these stocks. You know, I continue to you know, point out my gold fund. Of course, that's not the only way that you could buy uh, gold stocks. I think it's the best way. Personally, I think Adrian's the best manager. That's why I hired him. So I think that people would be well served to buy the Euro Pacific Gold Fund, uh, EPGFX. There's other symbols for the same fund. You can buy them at uh, Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade, a number of different firms. You can go directly to my website, EuroPacificFunds.com. Buy my gold fund. If you don't want to be in a fund, if you have a larger account, we can manage a portfolio for you of gold stocks. And of course, you know, I manage a lot more than gold stocks. The reason I'm focusing on them right now is because I just think there's an explosive rally coming. And so I think now you really want to concentrate uh, some of your powder in that area. Once we get, I think, a double or a triple, again, of course, it's not without risk. But if we do that, then we can lighten up on those stocks and we can get into more defensive, more conservative names. Uh, that don't have as much downside risk. And they obviously, if they triple, they'll have more downside risk uh, than they do now. But I still think Wall Street has got this story wrong. They still don't understand how this is going to shake out. They're still too complacent because they don't think QE1, 2, or 3 caused inflation. So they don't think QE4 will either. They don't understand that the whole thing is inflation. And they don't understand how it worked and why it wasn't more damaging back then and what the big difference is. I understand that. And this is not, they're, you know, they're fighting the last war. They don't understand how uh, this war is going to be different. But, you know, speaking about the last war, I was looking at this chart of the stock market. And it was looking at the concentration of market cap of the S&P in the top five names. And it went back to the, um, the dot-com peak in 2020. And back then, the top five stocks were about 17%. I don't have the exact numbers, but it was about 17% of the total market cap of the S&P was concentrated in these five names. Today, it's about 21% concentrated in these five names. And so whenever you have a bubble, right, at the end of the bubble, the rally gets more and more narrow and fewer and fewer stocks are going up. And then when you have a handful of stocks that are responsible for a huge percentage of gain, you end up with this crazy concentration in those top stocks. And in 1980, the, the uh, top stocks, I, I, I wrote them down right here, were Microsoft, General Electric, Walmart, Cisco, and Intel, right? Those were the top stocks, 17% of the S&P. By 2010, right, we went through a bear market, but now we're back in a bull market. But by 2010, those stocks represented just 11% of the S&P. So the market went down, they went down, but even when it came up, they were a much smaller percentage 
of the S&P than they were at the peak, right? So those winners were lousy investments when the bubble deflated, right? Even more so than the overall stock market, right? So they went up the most, but eventually they, they went down the most. They got, they got killed. But the point is that you have this type of concentration at the peak of a market, which is exactly what we have now because now you have an even greater concentration of market cap in the top five stocks. And of course, what's also interesting is only one of those stocks are the same. And that's Microsoft. Microsoft was one of the top stocks in 19, in 2000, and it's one of the top stocks today. The other stocks are different, right? The other top four are Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and, and Google. So basically, Amazon uh, has uh, taken out Walmart. Walmart was in the top spot in 2000. So that, that spot has gone uh, to Amazon. But we've basically replaced GE, Cisco, and Intel with Apple, Facebook, and Google, which is technically Alphabet. But you'll notice that Cisco, Intel were tech stocks. They were making chips, right, uh, uh, and, and hardware that, that, that went into the internet boom. Well, now you have Facebook, Google, uh, you know, in a similar type of concentration with social media and online advertising and things like that. And kind of Apple has replaced GE, right? Because Apple does make products uh, like GE. Well, G- GE got involved in a lot of finance back then. So it was, it was also like a financial at the time. I remember I used to call it a, uh, a hedge fund masquerading as a company. So it also shows you that, you know, the, the same stocks that dominated the last bubble are not dominating this bubble. But what they have in common is that you get a handful of stocks that everybody crowds into towards the end of the bubble, right? Because more and more names start to blow up. And so investors start to crowd into those names that haven't collapsed yet, which is what we've been experiencing with some of these stocks. And then, of course, you can look at a lot of other stocks that are also near the highs that make up a big uh, percentage of the overall market cap. But all this is telling you that this is a peak, that this is a bubble, that we have a long way to go down in the price of stocks. But the important thing to keep in mind is it's not even the nominal price that matters in terms of dollars that are going to crash. Uh, it's the, the value in terms of gold, which is, which is real money. The final point that I wanted to make in this podcast, I didn't even realize it would, it would, it would go this long. Uh, but, and I meant to make this point in my last podcast, and I forgot about it because it was, it was a bigger story at the end of last week. But it, it's still out there in the news. And this is the idea of whether or not we should allow states and municipalities to go bankrupt or whether or not the federal government should bail them out. It started, I think it was, Mitch McConnell said something about maybe we should let states go bankrupt. I think he's since backtracked on some of those uh, statements. But McConnell was like, well, you know, states should just declare bankruptcy or whatever. They don't have any money. And Andy Cuomo was like, oh, no, this is terrible. This would be so irresponsible. I mean, you want to see a major economic implosion, a crash. I mean, you just let some of these states go bankrupt and it's just going to be horrible, right? So that, you know, you can't let this happen. This would be reckless and irresponsible to let these states go bankrupt. So we must bail them out to, you know, save, spare the economy from this collapse, right? And of course, you know, I agree to an extent with Cuomo that it would, in the short run, make things more painful, make things worse if states and municipalities went bankrupt. There's no question about that. But it's the right thing to do. It is far worse to bail them out. The cost of bailing them out is much higher than the cost of letting them go bankrupt. Even if those costs are deferred by a few years, they're still there. They still have to be paid. And they add up, and they're going to add up to a much bigger number. And that's not even including the moral hazard of the bailout. Because once you bail out the states that were reckless, the message that you send is be reckless in the future. Right? And the message that you send to those states who were conservative and who set money aside, right? who didn't like run up big debts, who fully funded their pensions. What you're telling them is, hey, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Why were you being conservative? 
You didn't get any benefit from being conservative. The, the states that were reckless didn't have to deal with the consequences of that. Everybody is treated the same. If you were in debt, you got bailed out. So you were a sucker if you didn't have debt because you got taxed to fund those bailouts. So the message that we're sending to all the states is be reckless, be irresponsible. You know, this is the Eurozone moral hazard. Even worse, we got 50 states. That's a lot more uh, than countries that are in the Eurozone. So if you're worried about the moral hazard of the Euro, think about the Euro ha moral hazard of the dollar now when the Federal Reserve is not only going to monetize all the debts of the U.S. government, but all the debts of the 50 states. See, the states don't have their own printing presses, right? So a lot of states, you know, they want to balance the budget because they know they don't have that lifeline. They just can't go to the, the Fed like the U.S. Treasury can. But if we start the precedent of saying, hey, the Treasury is open for business, that the Treasury will monetize uh, state debt, right? If any states or even municipalities, if anybody gets in trouble, they've got a direct lifeline to the Fed. Now, all of a sudden, you open up that printing press to all 50 states. And what do you think that's going to do? Now, what is the limiting factor, right? Why wouldn't a governor or why wouldn't state representatives promise all sorts of something for nothing? Why not run up big deficits to buy votes? There's no consequences. There's no benefit to being fiscally frugal. And in fact, there's, a, there's actually a consequence because if you're frugal and the neighboring state uh, is reckless, then you end up paying the cost of their recklessness and you don't get any of the benefits yourself. So now everybody is competing to see who can be the most reckless, who can run up the biggest deficits. So in answer to what Cuomo is saying, the worst thing that could be done is to bail out states and municipalities. Yes, in the short run, it's more painful, but in the long run, it is the correct policy. See, the problem was all these states running up these debts in the first place. That was the problem. This is the consequence of the problem. Yes, they all want to use the COVID-19 as some kind of get out of jail free card, some kind of catch all like, oh, let's blame all the problems on COVID-19. These pensions were underfunded long before COVID-19. States, municipalities, they were broke long before COVID-19. Look, if you're on the top of the Empire State Building and you decide to jump off, yeah, when you hit the pavement, it's a real disaster, right? But it, hitting the pavement isn't the disaster. It's the consequence. The disaster was the bad decision that you made to jump off the top of the building in the first place. See, once you commit and jump, then that's it. I mean, hitting the pavement is a foregone conclusion. I mean, you're going to hit the pavement because you already jumped from the top of the building. So that's what's going on right now. The, these states already jumped from the top of the building years ago, decades ago, when they ran up these deficits, when they didn't fund their pensions, when they promised all this money to government workers and they didn't tax the voters to pay for it. That was the mistake. What we're experiencing now are the consequences from those mistakes. The moral hazard comes into play when you try to separate bad consequences from bad decisions. Because if you do that, you get more bad decisions. You encourage bad decisions. If you want to stop people from making bad decisions or states, politicians, let them suffer the consequences of those bad decisions and let other people see the consequences of those bad decisions so they don't repeat the mistakes because they see the example of what happens right? When you, when you are reckless and you run big deficits and live in the here and now, and you don't give a damn about the future. Well, look, this is what happens. We can see it. Let the other states see what not to do, right? Let the states that go bankrupt be a great example of what not to do. But if those states get bailed out, now it's the reverse. Now it's an example of what to do. See, run up big debts and just wait for a disaster and it's all going to be okay. You're going to be bailed out. So, I want to, you know, stand with Mitch McConnell. Hopefully uh, they can stick to their guns, but I'm afraid they're not going to do that. I mean, they're making every single mistake imaginable. And as much as they want to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to let states go bankrupt. We're going to let municipalities. I don't think they're going to do it. And of course, even if that's the plan, what's going to happen in 2021, right? If, if Joe Biden is president and we have Democrats 
uh, controlling Congress. It's one thing when you have a Republican Senate saying we're not going to bail out those blue states, right? Because it's mostly uh, states run by Democrats. There's no coincidence, you know, but these are the states that are in the biggest fiscal holes, right? So it's one thing for a Republican Senate to say we're not going to bail out those, uh, those blue states. But what happens when it is a Democratic House and Senate and a Democratic president? Of course, they're going to bail those states out. And how do they bail the states out? Massive money printing. And so we can't bail everybody out. I mean, that's the irony here, right? Everybody is saying that the states need to be bailed out. How can the government bail out the states? The, the, the only money the government has is the money it gets from the people. Well, that's the only money the state has. The government doesn't have anybody to tax at the federal level that the states don't have at their level. So what we should do, to the extent that a state's in trouble, that state should tax its own citizens instead of the federal government taxing all the citizens. But if every state is in trouble, because every state is dealing with you know, COVID-19 to one degree or another, how can the government bail out all 50 states? The money has to come from the taxpayers within that state. It's the same source of money that everybody is tapping into. Again, the only difference between the federal government and the state governments is the federal government has a printing press and the state governments don't. But that doesn't mean the bailouts don't cost any money. Right? It means it costs even more because it's all going to be funded by inflation. And if we're going to monetize the federal debts and we're going to monetize all the state municipal debts, then it's rampant inflation, it's hyperinflation, and you better get your gold, you better get your gold stocks, you got to get out of U.S. stocks and bonds and, and, and get your portfolio prepared as, as quickly as you can. You know, call up uh, my brokers at Europe Pacific Capital, call up Shift Gold. You know, I'm not just saying this because these are my companies and I benefit when you do business with me, which of course you do. Uh, but I'm also going to benefit by helping to make sure uh, that as many Americans, as many as my followers are not broke, uh, that, we, that we come through this financially in good shape because the more of us who don't go broke, uh, then the more of us we will, there will be to help make a difference, right? We're going to, in, in, in trying to rebuild this country and trying to change the narrative and trying to put the blame uh, for this complete implosion where it belongs, right? Not on capitalism and on the free markets, but on government, on central planning and, and central banking.